All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Will, and I am the senior pastor here at First Baptist. And so I know Matt welcomed you at the beginning, but I just want to take a moment as we enter into our teaching time together where I welcome you. If you're a first-time guest, if you're watching online, we're really glad that you've decided to join us. As today, we're really beginning to land the plane on a series that we've been in for the last seven weeks, where we have been looking at the, the question of what are the essentials? What does it mean for us to follow Jesus as we move into a world that is increasingly post-Christian? What are the values and the things that we need to hold on tight to if we want to claim the way of Jesus out in the world? And so anything you've missed so far, you can go back and download our podcast or go to the website, check it out as well. But today we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about a topic that we have not touched on yet. And so as we begin, as we always do, it's right, it's good for us to read scripture, the story of God and God's people. And what I want to read from now is a letter from a guy named Peter who was really the chief of staff for Jesus, the right-hand man of Jesus. And it's a letter he's writing to the church. We'll talk more about it in a few minutes, but you can follow along as I read to us from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Here's what Peter has to say. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Your purpose is to announce the virtuous deeds of the one who called you out of darkness and into his amazing light. Once you were no people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. My beloved ones, I beg you, strangers and resident aliens as you are, to hold back from the fleshly desires that wage war against your true lives. Keep up good conduct among the pagans so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll observe your good deeds and praise God on the day of his, King Jesus's royal arrival. So in the beginning, the earth was formless and void and darkness covered the face of the deep. That's what we read in the very first pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter one. It was dark and formless and void and there, and there was darkness over the face of the deep. And then something incredible happens according to our faith. The story says that God said, let there be light. And guess what? then there was light. And that's how the process of creation works, that every single day in the creation story, God speaks a word and then something begins to happen. It's incredible, isn't it? That words have power in them. Words have the potential to do something. It's true for God, but what I want to suggest to us this morning that it is also true for us as humans. One of my favorite thinkers and writers is a guy named Abraham Heschel. He was a uh, rabbi and he died, gosh, 20, 30 years ago, 30, 40 years ago now. But if you've never read anything of Heschel's, I invite you to go and pick up his stuff and read it because it is incredible. And he's got this one phrase that I really love when he's talking about the creation story. And here's what it is, that words create worlds, that words create worlds. And in the same way that God said, let there be light and there was light, God spoke something into existence. What, what Heschel goes on to say, and what I believe is actually true as well, is that we, through our words, 
have the power to create circumstances in the world. Through our language, through the way we speak, we have the ability to create possibilities that were not there. Words create worlds. I think, for example, about the way I talk to my children and the way all of us who have kids talk to our children. The way we speak to them begins to create something inside of them. And if we are continually telling them that they are good and that they are beautiful, every single night before I put my three girls to bed, I walk in their room and I kiss them on the head and I say, I love you so much. And they all say, I love you too, daddy. See, because I know and I understand that words have the ability to create worlds where they know that they are loved. It's true of God when he speaks into creation. It's true of us as parents. It is true of us in the everyday rhythms of our lives that words have power. They have power to create things that are good. But what I also want us to understand is that words have the ability to create misunderstandings. They have the ability to create misunderstandings. And I think as I kind of think about this series and go through what are some of the most misunderstood ideas in the Christian faith, there is one word that continues to come back to me. And here's what it is, the word church. It is a word that has enormous potential for good, but it is also a word that I believe, and I think you would agree with me, that it is a word that is misunderstood. And if words create worlds, then it's important for us to have a proper understanding of a word like this, a word that is packed with power and potential, the word church. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. And as we enter into this conversation today, one of the things I want us to understand from the get-go is that I know so many of us who are here in this room and so many of us who are watching online, we have probably been hurt by churches. If you remember a few months ago, I preached a 10-week series on church baggage because I know that every single one of us has had an experience, maybe not every one of us, but almost every single one of us has had some sort of experience in the church that has led us to feel like maybe we don't belong. Maybe someone has specifically told you you don't belong, or maybe you've been to a church where the senior leadership has moral failures and you walk away from it thinking like, man, if that's what church is, I don't want any part of it. All of us, I think, in this room have had some experience of church baggage where the word, I think, has been so taken out of its context and so radically misunderstood. So I know that as we enter into this moment today, but as we continue on in this series on the essentials, I wanna make what ultimately is a provocative claim. And here's what it is, that the church is essential for the Jesus movement, that the church is essential for the Jesus movement. And, and this is something that's gonna strike us as a little bit strange because we live in a culture that is centered around the individual. Think about popular music, for example. Now, these examples are just a little bit dated, but think about Josh Turner. Anybody remember that country singer, Josh Turner? He wrote a song, you remember it? He said, you could say we're like two peas in a pod, me and God. Or another one of my favorites, a guy named Tupac Shakur. Anybody remember Tupac? Come on, get at me. Tupac had a song called Only God Can Judge Me. And I can't sing that because I would get bleeped on the internet, okay? But we process faith through the lens of individual experience. People tell me all the time, Will, yeah, I believe I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. And what I want us to understand this morning is that properly understood, that 
isn't a claim we can make because fundamental, essential to the Christian life is that we are rooted in a thing that is called the church. Just think, for example, just real quick. There are 27 letters in the New Testament, 27 books. Some of them are histories. Some of them are gospels. The majority of them are letters that are written by guys like Peter or maybe written by Paul and others. And every single one of those letters at a deep level is written to the church. Even the letters that are written to individuals are written to leaders and pastors in the church, encouraging them on how to be part of the church in a more effective and in a better way. And so while it might be something we like to do to process faith through the lens of an individualized faith, what we have to understand is that if we want to live into the fullness of who Jesus created us to be, we have to understand that we are created to be part of this thing called the church. It is essential for us to get. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what is the church. And, and, and I told the band a little bit earlier, this is going to seem like Christianity 101, but guess what? It is. And I am convinced that the majority of us, if we've never been in the church or if we have been in the church for our entire lives, we have misunderstandings about what the church is. Remember, words create worlds. And so what I want to do is I'm going to talk about these words we have used to describe church that have created misunderstandings. I want to do that for just a minute before we shift gears. And the first thing that I want us to understand is this, that, that in, in, in terms of what it is not, here's what the church is not. Number one, the church is not a place. The church is not a place. Now, I did not grow up as a Christian. I did not grow up going to church. I wasn't even an Easter and Christmas kid. But a lot of you were, and so you are familiar with this little uh, ditty that we teach kids, right? Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, and there are the people. I'm pretty sure I did that wrong, didn't I? <laughs> but, but still, you get the point, right? You get the point. And we teach this to children, and what we are telling them is, here is the church, and when we think and when we talk about church, we talk and we think about a place. We think and we talk about a place. Think about, just, just go, go through your own experience this morning. When you got in the car, when you were talking to your family, where did you say you were going? We're going to church because we have been automatically conditioned to think about the word church as connotating a place. And if we are going to get what Jesus intends when he uses this word church, the Greek word ekklesia, we need to know that at a fundamental level, it has absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing to do with a place. Now, I want to pause on this for just a minute. I want to be careful in how I talk about this language, because what I am not saying is that the place isn't important. Because the reality is, friends, man, some people got married in this building. Uh, so many people come and they do weddings in our sanctuary or in our chapel and uh, 30 or 40 funerals every year in the sanctuary and in the chapel and these memories that we hold from the sacred events that take place on our property, they are ingrained in our consciousness. They're important to us because space can be sacred. And I want to be crystal clear on that. 
But I also have to make sure we understand that when we talk about the church, we are not talking about a place. And as we move into post-Christian culture, and as we see thousands of churches that are going to shut their doors every single year, this is not just my opinion. This is objective analysis based on what has been happening. We can have our hearts be sad because churches, communities are closing their doors. But ultimately, the church is not a place. Jesus is crystal clear on this fact. He's standing at the temple in ancient Israel, which if you can remember, the temple is the place in ancient Israel where heaven and earth literally come together in the minds of Jews of the first century. And Jesus walks up to this space, the most sacred space in the whole of Israelites' world. And what he says is, tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Because the presence of God is not to be found in a place. And Jesus goes on to say that it is found somewhere else entirely. And we're going to get to that in just a few moments. But the first thing we have to understand, if we want to properly wrap our brains around what the church is, we need to unlearn that nursery rhyme, okay? Uh, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, and there's the people. Y'all show me afterwards how to do that correctly, okay? Because it's not a place. And some of us need to hear that this morning. The second thing that I want us to understand, and I think this might be more indicative of the cultural moment that we are living in. The second thing we need to understand in a negative definition, okay, is this, that the church is not a product. The church is not a thing that you consume because it's all about you. I know that's going to be tough for us to hear for just a few minutes, but, but we got to circle on this, right? One of the phrases that I hear so often in our world, every Sunday almost, someone will say to me, I'm like, so how'd you, how'd you come to our church? How'd you find out about us? And you know what they say? You ready? Oh, we're just church shopping. I have probably said that myself, and so I want to be clear on it. The church is not a product in the same way that this Peter Millar jacket is a product. Do, do you get that? That the church is fundamentally about something that is bigger and better and more beautiful than the consumer preferences that we have on a day-to-day -day basis. And we live in a world, y'all, where everything, absolutely everything is commodified and is up for sale. And so it is our natural impulse to say, I'm going to go to a church that I like because they have X, Y, and Z. I wish I were kidding you, but I had someone tell me not that long ago that they have stopped going to a particular church. And you know why? And I'm thinking like maybe because they're not preaching and teaching the Bible. Maybe there's been some kind of shakeup. I don't know. And that what they said to me is, we're not going to that church anymore. And they had only been a few times, so they weren't deeply plugged in. But we're not going to that church anymore because they switched coffee brands. And I don't like their coffee. Have you ever stopped and considered the fact that the world does not revolve around you and your preferences and your likes? And as long as we continue to think about church as a commodity that we consume because it gives us what we need, then we are never going to unleash the full potential 
of what the church is called to be in the world. And so in our current day and age, the two things for me at least that we really have to understand is that one, the church is not a place and the church is not a product. And so if we can get our minds wrapped around that, that the church isn't a place and the church isn't a product, then we are in a position to begin to shift gears and ask a more positive question. So if, if the church isn't that, then what is the church supposed to be in the world? I'm not saying what it always is, but what is it called to be in the world? And in order to answer that question, I want to go back to what I read to you just a few minutes ago. Peter is writing this letter, not just to one church, but to a number of churches in the Mediterranean world. And I want you to think through your first century glasses for just a moment, because what has happened is that Claudius, Claudius is the emperor of the Roman Empire. And in 49 AD, Claudius does something that is really unparalleled up to that time, because he decides that Jews are causing too many problems in Rome. And so he issues an edict and he expels all Jews from the city of Rome. And you got to remember that in our beginnings, all Christians at the beginning were Jewish. And so what is happening at this time is that the Jewish Christians are beginning to get scared that they're going to have to be expelled from Rome. And so what happens is a number of them proactively decide to leave. We're going to get out of the city before danger and harm comes to us. Because if Claudius was willing to do that to the Jews, then ultimately they believed he would be willing to do that to them as well. And so these followers of Jesus have left their home base. They're separated from their family and from their friends. They're living in these strange cities that they have not been in before. And Peter is writing a letter to these individuals. He calls them the church in the diaspora. He's writing to them really for two primary purposes. He's writing to encourage them and he is writing to remind them of their identity, not as individuals, but their identity as a community, as their, their identity as a church. And if we want to wrap our minds around what does it positively mean to be the church, we can do no better than to go and read this little section from Peter. And what he said in 1 Peter chapter 2 is this. Remember, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him. Get ready. Who called you out of darkness and into his glorious light. And if we take that one verse, 1 Peter verse 9, here's what we can discover. That the church at its best is really about two primary things. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are first and foremost a community. And the second thing that he would say is that you are called to declare the marvelous deeds of the one who led you out of darkness and into glorious light. You are called to tell people about Jesus. That at its essence, friends, listen, it are the two things that the church is about. So let's talk about that for just a few minutes. Number one, this is it. If you want to know what the church is, at its best, the church is a community. The church is a community. And I know this strikes us as strange in the hyper-individualized world that we are living in. But if you take scripture, if you take the story of God and God's people seriously, 
what you will know is that the first history of the early church is written in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, what do we find but this strange community of people gather together And the story in Acts chapter 2 says that they share everything they have. They break bread together on a daily basis. They sing songs together. Every day they get together. They pray for each other. They live in radical community. Y'all, it goes as far as to say that in the early church, they shared their stuff. Can you imagine what a radical concept that is? We actually share our stuff together. The church at its best is not a product that you taste to get your high on Sunday morning, right? But the church is a community of people who live together in this radical, beautiful thing. We share life together. We're a community. I want to be crystal clear on this point. To be a community in the way of Jesus, it doesn't mean that we're a country club where we all look alike and we all act alike and we all have the same income status. To be a community in the name of Jesus does not mean that we're a monolithic tribe of people who all vote the same way and think the same way. No, 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 no. When we understand the radical definition of what community is, what Paul says in one of his letters that in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. What he is doing in that passage is he's taking the three primary class distinctions in the ancient world, religion, race, and gender. And he is saying those in the community of Christ don't hold the same sort of significance. We are a community of people from broad backgrounds, different races and different economic statuses, different political persuasions. And we are held together by one thing and one thing alone, by Jesus Christ Because we understand that while we were yet sinners, right, Christ died for us. And we are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of our own doing. And so we come together as a community because we recognize that we are all broken. But thanks be to God, through him, we can be made whole. And through him, we can share our lives in this beautiful and profound way. Guys, the church is first and foremost a community of people. And it is so easy. Listen, in a church like ours, we're a big church. I get it. And in a church like ours, it is easy to show up on Sunday morning to hear some music and to hear a sermon. And hopefully you walk away feeling inspired to go live a good life. But listen, if you want to really be transformed, if you really want to understand the hope that Jesus has for your life, you can't just do the Sunday morning thing. But you need to get plugged into the deeper life of this community. So you show up for a Sunday school class or for a small group that meets throughout the week. You show up when that couple has a baby and you can get in on that meal train. You show up when somebody's sick and in the hospital because that's what community centered on Jesus does. We are not a place and we are not a product, but we are definitely and most radically a community that is centered on Christ. And that actually leads into the second thing. And for me, what is ultimately the most important thing we can understand about the church. Remember what Peter said, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. 
called by God to declare his marvelous deeds. If I could put it another way, here's what the church is called to do, that the church ultimately does this. We tell people about Jesus Christ. We tell people about Jesus. That's what we do. Yo, I am amazed. Somebody said to me one time, they said, Will, I, am just, I just can't believe how much you talk about Jesus in your sermons. What else are we supposed to talk about, y'all? We exist as a community of people to tell about Jesus. The last thing he said to us before he ascended to the Father, in Matthew chapter 28, if you grew up in church, you know it, it's the Great Commission, where he says, hey, I am giving you all authority and heaven on earth has been given to me, and now I'm sending you, church, to go out into the world and to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them everything I have taught you, to bring disciples to Jesus. That's why we exist, y'all. This is not that complicated. And let me be real clear on something, because somebody said to me the other day, a friend of mine, he's in sales. He said, Will, you know, when you tell people about Jesus, we're doing the same thing. We're both selling something, right? No, we are not. Let me, let me be really, really clear on this. I am not selling you Jesus. And when we go out as a church and we tell people about the resurrected Christ, we're not selling them anything. But what we are doing and what I mean when I say we tell people about Jesus is we are making an announcement. We are telling people the news that on Easter Sunday morning, Christ defeated death and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father where he will come again to rule over all things. I'm not selling you anything. I'm telling you a fact. And you can choose to believe it or not but it doesn't make it any less true. And that's what the church means historically when we say we are called to tell people about Jesus, not to give you an option and a plethora of things to choose from in the religious life of America, but to make an announcement that Jesus Christ is the world's true Lord. And you have an opportunity to give your life to him right now so that you can live and live well. That's pretty simple, isn't it? And ultimately, y'all, that's what the church is about. We're not a place. We're definitely not a product. But we're a community of people who go out and announce the good news. And some of y'all are here this morning, and I get it. You've been burned by the church, and you've experienced the opposite of what I've been talking about. But what I want you to hear this morning is that Jesus calls us to be better. Jesus calls us to live into that community of people who tells about him. And do you know how we're going to do it? You know how we're going to do it? Because you're going to come and be a part of us. And so ultimately, that's the invitation for you to recognize that your life will be made better in community with each other and your life will be made better. When you hear the words of Jesus, that the primary function of the church is to go out and not sell a product, but to announce the good news. And so that's what our church is about. And as you go out into your week, I wanna leave you with what is our vision statement that we developed in 2019. We're re-engaging with it and it will be everywhere so you can't forget it. And here's what it is, that our church exists to connect people to Jesus Christ and to this community of faith. Because when we understand what church is truly about, friends, then we are in a position to live and live well. 
I want us to take a few moments now and let's go to God and pray. Pray with me, please. God, we are grateful. We're grateful for another morning where we can gather together, where we can celebrate you and your goodness. Lord, right now, so many of us just don't understand what we mean when we use the word church. For so many of us, we've been conditioned to think of it as a place or a product. And God, today, break that cycle in our minds. Help us to see that the true meaning of that word church is something far more powerful, that it is an invitation to a life together, that it is an invitation to announce the truest and best way, the only way in this world, which is the way of Jesus. So God, equip us here at the First Baptist Church to abandon those ways of thinking that are bogus and out of line with the gospel. And Lord, reorient our hearts, reorient our lives this morning so that we might be what the church has always been called to be, a community of people who go out and proclaim the way of Jesus. God, continue to be with us as we worship you this morning. This is our prayer. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.